If you've lost your place in 2 Timothy, please regain it, because we will be looking at it in some detail today. The crown jewel of our postmodern culture is tolerance. It's as American, if not more American in many people's minds, than mom and apple pie. We're going to look at the intolerance of tolerance today. It sounds like an oxymoron. Maybe it is. It's sort of like saying we're going to consider the darkness of light or the hotness of cold. But you'll see what I'm getting at, I hope, as we work our way through this passage of Scripture and assorted other Scriptures. Tolerance really has two meanings in our culture today. We call the first meaning, meaning rather, the old tolerance. That is, simply the acceptance of the existence of differing views. That is the old tolerance. It has three presuppositions. The first and foremost is, there is external objective truth which we should pursue. Secondly, there is only one truth on any matter in life. And thirdly, there should be free and respectful exchange of ideas with the goal to persuade those who differ from us, who believe we have the truth, might join us in seeing things the way we see those things. The old tolerance is putting up with others' beliefs even when they contradict the truth as we see it. Without disdain, we hope that those who do not see what we have been gratefully shown will embrace the truth. That's the old tolerance. Voltaire, the French philosopher, captured it in a simple saying. I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. That is the old tolerance. The new tolerance is quite different. The second meaning of tolerance is the new tolerance, which is the acceptance of differing views as all being equally valid. There's a problem right there, frankly. For example, one of the mantras of those who are of the new tolerance perspective in a postmodern age say all supposed paths to God are equally true. The new tolerance is based on relativism, which says that there is no external objective measure or standard for truth. The relativist says that there is no way to know the truth. This is fast becoming the prevailing way of thinking in our culture. Its supreme virtue is tolerance. I've already said that in a different way. The belief that everybody's ideas are okay. Its supreme vice, therefore, is intolerance. It's, in my opinion, morally bankrupt because its mantra is anything goes. It sanctions the every person can do what is right in his or her own eyes philosophy of life. You can see where that's headed. Anarchy, chaos, if there's no order. How are we to respond as followers of Christ to the charge that we who do believe that there is truth, 
We actually believe that there is one person in whom all the truth of God is concentrated. Because the Bible says about this person that all the fullness of God dwells in him in bodily form. That person, of course, is the resurrected Jesus. Also, the pre-existent Jesus. Before there was time, he was a being. He is fully God and fully man. He, by his own description, is the truth. Not a truth among many truths. Not a truth that has more truth than all the rest of the truths. But he is exclusively the truth. This is what causes people to call people like me intolerant. And if you follow Jesus Christ, perhaps you also. We know what the Bible says in the book of Acts chapter 4. That there is no other name under heaven whereby men shall be saved. Women too, for that matter. There's only one avenue. The name of Jesus. What does the name of Jesus mean? It means He has done what He could only do for us. What we could not do for ourselves. Now there are people who look at people like me and call me not only bigoted, but arrogant. How dare you claim that Jesus is the only way and you have come to know Him and you're one of His followers. Well, I don't claim it with any degree of pride. In fact, what pride still exists in me, and there's plenty still to be worked on, is gradually, if not at times, very harshly decimated and lowered because I understand the more I grow in my walk with Christ, the more I study the Word of God, which is the truth, the more I am convinced of, and it's reiterated to me repeatedly, is that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good. There is none who seeks God. That's why Jesus came in the beginning. He came that He might seek and save that which was lost. That was His own description of His mission. That's why Christ came. To find you in your lostness. To find me in the darkness in which I lived, separated from God by the sin in my life. So there's no room for hot-dogging it spiritually for you or for me. There's only a place for humility coming before a powerful God and humbling ourselves before Him, thanking Him for who He is and what He's done. How might we respond as followers of this Christ to the charge that we are intolerant because we only think He is the way? Well, this is where we get to the Word of God. In the second epistle of Paul to Timothy, look at it again. Two things we must do from this passage of Scripture. One, negatively, we must not be cowardly. This is suggested in this passage of Scripture. Look at verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear. The word timidity is equally well translated fear by other translations. God has not given us a spirit of fear. Now glance down at the top of verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, or as the NIV says, to testify about our Lord, to give witness to Jesus Christ. Don't be afraid or of me, his prisoner. Now that would suggest one thing, at least, about Timothy. 
He was feeling afraid. Do you ever feel afraid when it seems that the Lord would want you to speak the truth of the gospel and therefore be liable to suffer with Him and for Him as a result of that? Does that ever put fear in your heart? Make you want to kind of cower? Timothy had the temperament, evidently, that was a sensitive temperament. He loved people. He loved to serve people. Paul says about him in Philippians chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in you. Of all those whom Paul had discipled up until that moment, and he had been doing it for three decades, he had no one else like him. That is, Timothy was one who took an interest that was real in people. And also, he goes on to say in the next verse, everybody else looks out for their own interests. But Timothy, oh Timothy, my dear son of the faith, he looks out for the interest of Jesus Christ. What does that tell us about what Jesus is interested in? He's interested in people. That's what he's interested in. He's interested in his sheep. He knows them by name. And we who know Jesus Christ, those of us who may be a little more on the sensitive side, and we're really sensitive to other people in the body of Christ and even those on the outside, and the last thing we want to do is offend somebody, what we need to understand is we're not to be intimidated by people who oppose Christ in us. Jesus is not an idea. He is way beyond an idea. He is the one who is the author of all things. Because the Bible says in G- about Him in John chapter 1, and says, all things came into being through Him, and nothing came into being that has come into being except through Jesus Christ. And Jesus is described as the Word. Jesus says this about Himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. That's who I am. Is this to say, I'm inclusive of every word that really matters. Every idea that can be thought and every idea which can be expressed, it came from me and it finds its true meaning in me. That's who Jesus is. No idea, but incredible person because he's fully God and fully man. He lives in us. That's why we don't have to fear. How does He live in us? The Bible says in Romans 8 9 that if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to Christ. We can talk all we want to about how much we belong to Christ, but if we're not assured of His presence in our lives, we have no ground to stand on. But when He's in our lives, He who is bolder than bold, He who stood stood in the face of, as it were, Nero himself, he stood face to face with Pilate, the one who had been tapped by the emperor to go to Palestine and to represent the Roman Empire. And he stood right in front of him. Do you remember what Pilate mused in that setting? He said, what is truth? Well, truth was right there before him. Jesus, the truth, was crucified. He showed great courage. He was not a coward. And this 
verse which precedes the passage which we read earlier. Look at it, verse 6. For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. The gift that is spoken of is not described by Paul in the writing. What we do know in the first letter to Timothy, Paul says this, stop neglecting your gift. He doesn't tell him what gift he has. Timothy knew. And evidently the Spirit of God didn't necessarily want us to know for fear that we might say, I don't have that gift, so I'm off the hook. But what we do know is the Holy Spirit gives gifts as He so chooses to everyone who is a member of Christ. Everyone who knows Christ, in whom the Spirit of Christ dwells. Part of the package of your salvation is that you received a spiritual gift. Timothy had one, and he's told, fan into flame the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. Kindle it. And the verb is a verb which means keep on kindling the gift of God that is in you. What that says to Timothy is the same thing it says to me and to you, really. The way to remain courageous is to remember who we are, whose we are, more importantly, and who indwells us. We need to understand that. God indwells you by His Spirit. He lives in you. What a wonderful gospel this is. And what a wonderful place we occupy in the universe as children of God and disciples of Christ. So, the first thing we are to do in response to those who are intolerant of us is we're not to be cowards. We're to fan in the flame the gift that is within us. We're not to be ashamed of Jesus and His words in this adulterous and sinful generation. He'll give us what we need. Uh, you might guess already what the second thing is. I think it's already up there. Somebody's wanting me to get through with this sermon. So <laughs> you can pay her off after the service is over. We must be courageous. That's what it is all about. And this is what this text teaches. Look at the last part of verse 7, which gives us the aspects of this courage. It's not the normal definition we might assign to courage. We have not received a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind is the translation I'm going to appeal to in this part of the teaching. So let's look at the aspects, the elements of this courage, the first of which is power. The word translated power is a word that's used not exclusively, but most often in the New Testament, which is a word that gives us our English words dynamite or dynamism. It's dunamis. You can hear the words of English that come from it embedded in that Greek word. And Jesus says in Acts chapter 1 to his apostles before he ascended into heaven, he said, you shall receive power, he uses this word, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses. And then he expresses all over the world is what he said. You'll be my witnesses. The power of the Holy Spirit is ours because why? We do not have the spirit of fear. I believe that would mean the spirit, the Holy Spirit. We do not have such a spirit living in us. He is in the embodiment, the epitome of what it means to be courageous. We do not have that. We have the power of God 
for witnessing. I read with great delight a story about a woman who in 1953, after graduating from medical school from the University of Cambridge, made her way to spend the rest of the best part of her life as a missionary, a single woman in the Congo, as it was called then. Today it's Zaire. Her name, Helen Rosevere. She got there. There was nothing where she went. Her responsibility and her own vision for her life was that she would build a hospital for people who had no medical care. She would bring medical attention to them through the skills which God had given her and which she had sharply honed in medical school in the practice of medicine. That She also included in her vision that there would be an orphanage built on the grounds and that she would find young women who would want to learn how to nurse people back to good health. She went to this place where there was no village out in the bush. There was no form of communication way before the days of satellite phones and any kind of electronic communication in that part of the world at least. One night she and one of her nurses were helping deliver a baby. The mother was in distress. I never suppose there's been a woman who was not in distress when delivering a baby. But this was beyond normal. The baby was born prematurely. The mother died in childbirth. The mother left not only this prematurely born child, a little girl, but also a two-year-old daughter. And so two children were orphaned in that night. What would normally occur with a baby born in that clinic who was born on time, as we would say, would be there would be a, a water bottle that would be filled with warm water, heated on a wood stove, and placed next to that baby to keep the baby warm. It was all the more important for this baby because of the premature nature of her birth. But just a few days later, that hot water bottle had burst. They were far from any form of civilization. They did not know this woman was going to show up. And of course, when the baby came, Helen was concerned. Dr. Helen said to one of the helpers in this process, go and get the box. There was a little box that they had set apart to house the babies when they were born. There were no incubators in this clinic. But there was a little box and there was a certain set of clothing which was especially warm and was kept clean for moments like this. And she told another, go get the clothing. Then she told a third, go and get wood. It was nighttime. You think in equatorial Africa, why would you need wood? Because there are places that are way above sea level there and it gets cool at night. And so this other woman grabbed wood and did as she was told, put it into the stove and lit the fire. Then she gave orders to one more of these young ladies. She said, I want you to put the baby as close as is safe to the fire and you lie down beside her and you keep watch over her during the night. Someone will relieve you in the morning. So morning came. Dr. Helen wanted to tell the orphans about the birth of another orphan in a child 
who became an orphan with the birth of her little sister. She said, children, as she finished telling the story, let us pray for this little baby and also for her sister. And she called on one young lady. Her name was Ruth. And Ruth said, gladly, yes, Dr. Helen, I will pray. And as she began to pray, this was part of her prayer. She said, oh, Lord, would you please send this little baby a hot water bottle? And dear Lord, would you send her sister, who also has become an orphan, a dolly to make her feel better? Well, Dr. Helen's heart sunk because of the remoteness of where they were. And she did not want this child's faith to be dented in any way by the lack of God's response to her prayer. It was not very long after that, just a few minutes, that someone came to where Dr. Helen was meeting with these orphans and said to her, Dr. Helen, there's someone at your house who has come by car. So Helen wondered who might that be as she walked rather steadily and sometimes picking up the pace. She got there and there was a man, a delivery man, with a big parcel holding it like this. He said, Dr. Helen, this is a piece of mail for you. She handed it to her. Dr. Helen took it as she looked at the return address. It came from Northern Ireland. She saw the name. It was one of the women who was part of the Sunday school group that she was a part before she made her way to Africa. And it was common every once in a while to receive such uh, parcel, maybe every six months or so. So she put it down, opened it up. On top were many hand-knitted tops for the nurses. And then as she began to dig down, pulling out this little trinket and this thing, she touched something that felt like rubber. And as she grasped it and pulled it out, it was a hot water bottle. Can you imagine? A hot water bottle. The children had followed Dr. Helen to see what had come. And the girl, Ruth, said, let me pull the doll out of the box. Well, there was no doll inside. There were still layers of things which had been sent. And then this little girl put her hand down and she caught the leg of a doll. A dolly had been sent. Look, that's power, isn't it? The power of prayer, of a believing child. This is why the Bible says unless we become like little children, we will not enter the kingdom of God. And so what God has given us is this great access to Him so we can tap into the power of the Holy Spirit in praying and any other thing that God gives us to do. Do you know that same power is in you and me? He's not in any way limited to Central Africa. He's in America today and He lives in us and He responds to our faith when we trust in Him. This gives us courage, the power of the Holy Spirit. Love, that's the second component. This is the common word which is used for love in the New Testament. It's the word that Jesus used when a man came to Him and said to Him, Sir, what is the greatest commandment? Without hesitation, Jesus responded, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your strength, 
all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is this. Jesus throws in one for good measure. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we have been given the power to love those who are intolerant of us, who call us intolerant. My response would be a knee-jerk response when someone says, what I want to say to them is, hey, can I loan you a mirror? You're being intolerant and calling me intolerant. We get in a big fuss. But what the Lord says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, the Bible says that we are to accept one another just as God has accepted us in Christ. We talk a lot about, and rightly so, that God's love is unconditional. But when we speak of the unconditional nature of God's love, let us remember that doesn't mean that anything goes from God's perspective. He doesn't say, okay, just do what you want to now. Dear child, you can do as you please. Do you know the Bible talks about the love of God in a very interesting way? The Father in Hebrews 12, it says that He disciplines us as a function of His love. When I'm out of line, He disciplines me. And I thank God for His discipline of me. It's a great gift that He gives to us. Because there is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof, if pursued, leads to death. We all know what that road's like, probably. How we've thought about getting off the pathway that God has for us and going our own way. But the good news is that our Lord loves us. What about Jesus? Does He ever discipline us? Well, yes, He does. These are His own words found in the book of Revelation, chapter 3 where he says, those whom I love, I rebuke. That would be in modern vernacular, get in their faces, and I discipline them. This is the Lord. He loves us. Jesus loves us. What about the Holy Spirit? Yes, He's God. Does He discipline us? He does. He convicts us of sin. He puts the finger on those areas of our lives which are out from under the control of God. So what must we do to have this love? We must be filled with the Spirit of God. The Bible says in Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. Talking about the Holy Spirit. That means to be controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. We ask the Holy Spirit to take control. Lord, I hold nothing back from you. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. I hold nothing back, Holy Spirit. Please take over my life. And help me to walk in that all the days of my life. The flip side of that is we are to abide in Christ. In John 15, 5, and then verse 8, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. We can't bear fruit apart from the Lord. By the way, what heads the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5? Love is at the top. And it's His love. How do we have that love? The Bible says in Romans 5, 5, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. As we abide in Christ, the Spirit's love comes to us. And lastly, a sound mind. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2, 14, that the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, talking about people who don't know Christ, 
The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for he does not understand them. He can't understand them because they are spiritually understood or appraised, is the way the NASB puts it. But the spiritual person is appraised by no man, man and appraises all things, understands everything, but is misunderstood. This is why those who come against those of us who know Christ, that's why they come after us in part. They don't understand us. They don't like what they hear us saying. Jesus talked about people who do evil do not come to the light, and he's the light. In fact, to the contrary, they don't come. They run away. You know why they don't come? They hate the light. They don't come to the light. It's because they don't want their deeds exposed. They don't want to be called sinners. But that's the beginning point of salvation. I have to claim my sinnership if I'm going to be saved. I need a Savior. Christ said there were some people that He didn't come for because they thought they had it all together. Now let's look at the actions of such courage as we finish our time. They're very simple to understand. Know the truth. That's it. Where do we find the truth? We find it in the Word of God. That's what Jesus the truth said. He said, Your Word, Father, is truth. And if we abide in His Word, Jesus' Word, we are truly His disciples, and we shall know the truth, truth shall set us free. And in 15.5 of John, Jesus said, You're already clean because of the Word I have spoken to you. The Gospel is the Word that cleanses us from sin, sets us in a right relationship with God the Father, empowers us for living this life. We have to know the truth. It doesn't happen by osmosis, by the way. It happens when you apply the seat of your pants to the seat of a chair and open the book and read it. And God speaks to you. He gives you the mind of Christ and He transforms your mind by the renewing work of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. Secondly, we're to show the truth. We're to let our light shine before men in such a way that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Paul says later in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, he says, All those who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. He's already hinted at that in verse 8 in our text. In Philippians 1.29, it's rare that I've heard this verse quoted. This is what it says. It says, It has been granted to you that you, on behalf of Christ, have received the gift of salvation by grace, but also that you might suffer for Him. Wow. Wow. This is part of our calling. We're to show the truth. Then we're to bestow the truth. We're to give the truth away. In Ephesians 4.15, the Bible says, Speak the truth in love. We're always to speak the truth, but always couched in love. The truth hurts lots of times, doesn't it? But what we do know is we're to speak it with an understanding heart because we know what it's like to get off into a ditch somewhere spiritual. And when God sends someone who is spiritual, who has sensed that we need help to help us, then those people know how to relate to us. 
who are in trouble spiritually. Speak the truth in love. Let me digress a little bit. When people don't tolerate us, in fact, may even hate us, Jesus anticipates this in John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If the world hates Jesus and you're going to be identified with him, there are going to be a lot of people who aren't going to like you. They're going to misunderstand you. They're going to say all kinds of lies about you. They don't know you. They don't know the Lord. They don't understand us. So what are we to do when people say intolerant things about us? What are we going to do when they breathe threats at us? Are we going to ball up our fists and get red in the face and just let them have it? Are we going to do that? Well, let's consider an event in Jesus' life in Luke chapter 9. He and his men are making their way to Jerusalem to observe the Passover. They pass through Samaria. Jesus says to some of his apostles, go get us some food. They go. They come back. We know there were at least two, the brothers of Zebedee, James and John. When they came back, they said, they didn't want to give us anything, Lord. Lord, would you like for us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? Yeah, I love it, don't you? What did Jesus say? You do not know the spirit of who you are. Who was that spirit? The devil. That's the devil's way to strike back. His way is to repay evil with evil. But what is the Lord's way? Jesus goes on to say, For the Son of Man, speaking of himself, did not come to destroy men, but to save them. For the sake of those who are still in the dark spiritually. For the sake of those who say ugly things. Now remember, we have under the old tolerance and under the formation of this government, by the way, freedom of speech and freedom of religion, understanding the first line of the amendments to the Constitution say this, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. In other words, the government needs to keep its nose out of religion. That's what it's saying. Or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The government needs to keep its nose out of religion, is what that's saying. That's not the purview of the American government. It's God's great gift to us in this country. We thank God for having given us this freedom. The power of God is the gospel. It changes people. We need to share the gospel. We need to evangelize. And by the way, evangelizing is not intimidating people. It's not arm-twisting. It's not manipulating people. It's simply sharing the message. After all, how are people saved? By the gospel of Jesus Christ. The power is in the gospel. Not in the presentation, but in the gospel itself. Now, I want to close by saying good news is for sharing. It's not for keeping to ourselves. And also, I would like to note a couple of three things about the sharing of the gospel. Evangelizing. 
Our supreme task in this life is to preach the gospel of Jesus. Not like I might do in a place like this, but to share the gospel with people. That's our primary task that has been given to us. And it's easy to get locked up in a mentality of culture war, and we make that our primary target. We're going to change the culture. Look, unless we preach the gospel and make that number one, there will be no significant change in this culture. I'm not saying it's wrong to get involved in the public square. Christians are to be salt and light in every arena of life. God bless those who sense a calling in their lives to do that. But let them not be confused, nor let us be confused, that any human institution is going to deliver this country or any other from the problems that exist. Only Jesus Christ can do that. And He has residence in His church. And He wants to use His church for that. So let's keep the main thing the main thing. What is the main thing? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's another thing I'd like to make note of. And that is, we need to understand that God would have us to be proponents of the freedom of religion. Not many of you ever hear me say much about being a Baptist, but let me be very clear. The first Baptists in the United States were in Rhode Island, Providence to be exact. The first Baptist church was the first Baptist church in Providence, Rhode Island. And Roger Williams was an Anglican pastor who left the Anglican church to form what came to be a Baptist church. And you know what he is noted for? Freedom of religion. That everybody... He's the one that was the primary human instrument for bringing that to the United States. His influence is here. We need to be sure. If people want to be a Muslim, that's their business. If they want to be... a Hindu, that's their business. If they want to be nothing, that's their business. But we have the truth. And this is where evangelism comes in. We want to be used by God, don't we? To help people. And we change the world with the gospel because the gospel changes people. Amen? Thank you, Lord, that you are tolerant in the right way and you show us how to be tolerant in the right way. Amen?